It's the first Monday of the month, and we're responding to your questions. This is Coaching for Leaders, episode 443. Produced by Innovate Learning, maximizing human potential. Greetings to you from Orange County, California. This is Coaching for Leaders, and I'm your host, Dave Stahoviak. Leaders aren't born, they're made. And this weekly show helps you discover leadership wisdom through insightful conversations. And one of those conversations we like to have ongoing is with you, our listeners, and continuing to respond to what you're wondering about as we continue our dialogue throughout the show. And so once a month, we open up the show to respond to your questions. You can send in a question for consideration by going over to coachingforleaders.com slash feedback and sending in a question to us, which is what a number of folks have done here today. And I am with Bonnie again for this month's Q&A show. Welcome back, Bonnie. Thanks, Dave. I was thinking What's I didn't up? prepare you for this, but you know, we have a daughter who has been selected as a reader in her school's Christmas program. And so I've been out of town for a little while, as you know, Dave, but listeners won't know. And so last night was going to be our first night. We're going to practice that thing. We're going to start a little bit of what's known as retrieval practice and the training and in the teaching and learning field. And I was so excited. And I'd, I'd had all this thoughts about both you and I know how to make word pictures out of things. So I'm just ready to go, Dave. And guess what? What? No interest at all. <laughs> We're not doing this tonight. And so I thought, well, zero points for the first try. Let's try again today. We'll see how it goes. Wait, you weren't interested or she wasn't interested? She was not interested. Oh, no I missed that interest. conversation. And it's kind of interesting because, you know, when you're leading other people, or in this case, when they're your children, you really can't provide motivation to other people that just is not present. So Don't think I've tried. <laughs> I'm kind of having one of those times where it's like, don't ask me any questions. I can't, I can't do it. No, I, I'm sure she'll be fine. But it was one of those things where it's like, you can't push these kinds of things because you push a little too hard and all of a sudden your kid's out of the program and <laughs> has decided they're for sure not only not doing that night of practice, but zero nights of practice and they're out of the game completely. Yep. I am reminded often of how hard I work at changing my own behavior, much less trying to get anyone else to change mm-hmm. their behavior. <laughs> and so it's it comes up this comes up often in our academy conversations, actually, of what can we do to create the environment, but not necessarily try to control, which actually a tie into one of our questions here today, because oh, we have some so questions about this story will well. be relevant. Yes, at some yes, point. It, is, it is actually very relevant. So let's tackle our first question here from Robert. Robert wrote in and said, I'm finding it difficult to toe the line between leading my peers, I'm not the manager, empowering them to do better and competing with them for performance. I want everyone to do better and I want to lead them But at the same time, I want to do as much as I can do to get great reviews and move up the ladder. How can I be the leader of my team of peers? There's four of us doing the same job. Have them do better and still not get overlooked. I guess I'm afraid of leading being overlooked by the performance of others that I helped. Bonnie, I think all of us have had this thought, if not consciously, certainly subconsciously before. What are you thinking we can offer, Robert? First off, Robert, I need to let you know that what I'm about to tell you relates to your question. And that is that growing up, I took 11, count them 11 years of ballet. And one of the things that you learn in ballet 
is that it's not about competing. So I never did competitive sports. Actually, I shouldn't say that I never did. I just never did them well. and <laughs> never lasted for very long. So I really did grow up with the spirit of working in tandem with other people. So Dave mentions that everyone relates to this. And I actually did want to share that I don't think we all do. And I think some of this can be very gendered. Of course, it depends on culture and a number of other factors as well. But Little girls often are socialized on the playground to play more cooperative games and to work in common with a team to achieve a goal. And if you think about, Robert, the games you might have played as a little boy on the playground, you might find that they tended to have that king of the hill, the competitive environment. Someone has to win, so other people have to lose. And by the way, this is not exclusively gendered. I'm sure we've all ran into women who are quite competitive as well. This is hard work. I'm glad that you're asking this question because one of the things, if you'd like to achieve the next levels of leadership that you'll really need to convince yourself if you don't want to hold yourself back, is that there is an abundance of opportunity for us in the workplace such that if other people get ahead, and especially if it's because of our leadership and our influence, there's still plenty of room for us to quote unquote get ahead first. So one of the things I'd really encourage you to be doing some thinking about, some reflecting about, and really trying to shape your own perceptions is this abundance mindset. And one of the best resources that I know to turn to for this is Stephen Covey's book, The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. And the the habits really do relate to one another, but there's a specific habit having to do with this idea of there being an abundance. But again, it's sort of the pinnacle of his work is just this idea. There's plenty for all of us. And I don't want to have this come across at all in in any way other than what it's intended is care for you, Robert. This may be one of those areas where you actually need to look at something like therapy. And I know, Dave, there was an earlier episode from someone who talked about therapy and how to make use of it and how to find a good therapist, because this is trying to undo things, undo mental models that you have had in your life, Robert for decades and decades and decades. So this would be one of those things that you might want to consider if you find that even after you start putting your mind to it, you need a little bit more help, or perhaps it's just coaching someone else at work who can hold you accountable toward having more approaches to that abundant mindset. I have never in my career, by the way, I've seen people get promoted that don't have an abundance mindset. It happens all of the time. But I have never seen anyone who influences others as a leader and helps them grow their careers that doesn't have a lot come back to them that are positive in terms of, and sometimes this doesn't even show up for years and years, but nothing bad can happen from helping other people have success in their careers. And even if that means that tomorrow's job doesn't come to you, trust me, you're cultivating relationships that will carry you further than you could ever imagine they could. However, I'm a firm believer, if you keep this scarcity mindset in your head and you can't eradicate it, it is going to hold you back. And even if you do, even if you have it in your mind, I'm going to scratch your back, Dave, so you can come back and scratch my back. That comes across to people, even if we're not explicit about it. So you have a lot of change that you're seeking. And I love that you wrote to us today and you gave just that possibility to open your mind to something different. So thank you so much. And I I hope that some of this is helpful to you as you find a way forward. Yeah, I'm with you on the gender piece. And I'm so glad you mentioned that because that's the kind of thing that I miss in a question like this. 
and where I'm not as sure as I'm as much with you, Bonnie, is on the the scarcity mindset of it being him versus potentially the organization. Sadly, a lot of our organizations do have that scarcity mindset of it is a competitive culture. And you, Robert, may have come into this with an abundance mindset, and the organization has said, no, we're a competitive place, and this is the way it goes. So potentially, there's work for you to do here. Also, potentially, this is just the culture of the organization. You will know that better than we do. One thing that you may consider doing, and to Bonnie's point, the sooner you can get to that abundance mindset, whether in practice for yourself or to help the organization to get there a little more, at least the part you can influence, I think the better for you, the better for everyone else. And you're never going to go wrong by helping other people. And yeah, there will be days that maybe someone else takes credit for something, either because they're trying to or because that's just the way it plays out. But one thing I think you can do to tackle both is both be a great supporter of others and to help people, and also to be part of the conversation and the visibility for that is to socialize what you're doing, is talk about it, share the wins. When good things happen that you've been involved with, you've helped people with, you're not necessarily going to stand up in the room and say, hey, I helped with that. But when something good happens, someone has a win that was something you were a part of or you know of, or you maybe provided some advice, is to take the time to share that within the organization and to say, hey, we've been working on this project for the last three months. And Melissa just did this wonderful thing this past week that helped this customer do great work and helped us to have this incredible result. And uh, let's acknowledge her and let's thank her. And you're doing that genuinely, genuinely, truly, because you want her to get more visibility for her work because you're grateful for what she did. And I just think like, if you're willing to come at that from a genuine place and talk and socialize and help people and support them, like Bonnie said, it's going to come around and it's going to help you in the long run. It may not be the next position or the next role, but boy, that's a much healthier place to be for you as a person. And it's also a healthier place for the organization to be as a whole. So Robert, I hope that's helpful to you on a first step on what you may do on thinking about how to process that. So let's go next to the question from Harrison. Harrison writes, I'm having trouble working with a hostile client. I know that I can't control what others say. I can only control my reaction. I would like any advice on how to handle a difficult client and how to, quote, control the situation and move the project forward. I've talked to the client privately and publicly in meetings, always with respect and professionalism, but they do not listen. I've been in meetings with other colleagues, and they are in agreement that she is hostile. I really want to control the situation better and would like techniques on controlling my emotions so they don't affect me so much. Harrison, thank you so much for this question. And I mentioned Bonnie said the word control earlier, and we were going to come back to that. And I was thinking about your question. And the reason I'm thinking about it is because the word control has, has come up six or seven times in the question you sent us here. And I am conscious, by the way, Bonnie Harrison wrote and said that English is a second language, so there, there could be a bit of a language barrier here. And you did, Harrison, put the word control in quotes, which I appreciate. I want to address it, though, because, of course, you probably already know this, but it's worth saying out loud, is you can't control the situation. You can't control what the client does or does not do. What you can control is how you respond. And then that may influence what the client does or does not do. But at the end of the day, ultimately, that's going to be their choice. So a few thoughts on this. Whenever I'm dealing with a situation with a client, and thankfully, I don't 
run into this very much at all anymore, but when I did run into this more so in past roles, the thing that I found was, you know, generally speaking, you know, sometimes there's a boundaries issue of what does the relationship look like? What are the expectations? Making sure those are clear. And when we'd run into an issue with a customer that was having a problem or was asking for something perhaps that wasn't in the agreement of whatever the the situation was, I found that it was often helpful to have some options for how we'd handle that situation. And often we would then communicate that to the client. We'd say, okay, we've run into this issue, whatever issue it is. Here's a couple of ways that we could resolve this problem. Here's something we're willing to do. And I find in a lot of conflicts, that's a really helpful way to approach it rather than what we won't do, what we're not going to do to uh, try to address the problem. Here's two or three things we are willing to do and giving people options. People like options. And if you are willing to and able to frame the conversation that way, I think that might be one way to approach it. That's a tactical way to do it. On a mindset way, Harrison, there are these people, and we've all dealt with these. This I can fairly say, I think everyone has dealt with by <laughs> the, the difficult client or customer that you know everyone sort of is not looking forward to the meeting when it comes up. And we've all had these people we've dealt with. And I really think back to the chapter in Dale Carnegie's book of How to Stop Boring and Start Living. And the chapter is called Expect in Gratitude to have the expectation that people are sometimes not going to behave well. For whatever reason, either they're having a bad day, either they just didn't ever get the tools to learn how to handle themselves well in the professional space or as human beings in general, for whatever reason, people just don't show up as their best selves, or they do and their best self isn't really that great for whatever reason. And so I have found this is a helpful mindset, not as in I'm going to be a victim and I'm just going to let people treat me however I want them to treat me, but I found that it's helpful if I enter a conversation and I don't expect that someone necessarily has the experience, the training, the tools, the skills, whatever, to handle a situation well. And there's something about walking into a tough situation, especially with a difficult person, Harrison, that has just been helpful to me over the years of being able to mentally set aside the difficult, the motion, the frustration in that moment, and to be able to think, how can I still serve this person? What can I do in order to handle this well? And that has helped me more than once. The final thing I'd offer you is if this is truly a client that is difficult and other people, as you mentioned, around you are saying that and you or your organization have made a decision to work with this client, and it's not just a one-off situation where this is an ongoing problem, if you have the ability to influence this, maybe you start a conversation inside the organization of what does it look like if we don't work with this client going forward. And I think most healthy organizations have some vetting process and expectations of thinking about who are the clients we don't work with, who are the people that we're not going to serve well. And if your organization doesn't have that or you don't have the ability to influence that today, part of what you may do that's just helpful to have some agency in this challenging situation is to start looking at where this is causing problems from a numbers and a results standpoint. So because of this relationship with this client, where is that costing money, time, hours, rework, all of those things that virtually everyone in the organization is going to be concerned about? And then you start making the case for, hey, this isn't a relationship that we should be invested in long term. Those are three areas to start with, to start thinking about how you handle a difficult customer or difficult client. This is such a tough one. And Dave, you are correct. Yes, I have actually dealt with 
some difficult people in my days. I, 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 I do know that, yes. <laughs> and it's also difficult for Dave and I because we can't really tell what does hostile mean? What does hostile look like to you? And is hostile so extreme that you should never be in that situation again all the way to, and you said at the end, really look at the opportunity to change your own perspective. One approach that helps me, well, actually, there's two approaches and they're sort of opposite of one another. When I'm in those situations, I start to try to distance myself a little bit because you mentioned trying to control your emotions. So the expression, I don't know if you've heard this expression before, someone getting under your collar like or getting under your skin, she's bothering you. So can you start to take control of your own mind and where you place your attention? So for me, if it's something I don't really have to listen to so closely, so extremely, can I start focusing on my breath and just breathing in through my nose and feeling what that feels like. So kind of internalizing some of that and keeping some of the focus away from that toxic person and then breathing out through my mouth and see what that is like and just kind of taking myself away a little bit from the situation. And another approach that's similar to that is to take yourself outside of your body and to begin to watch what's happening. Almost like you are watching a tennis match though or maybe that's not a good example if you get really into your tennis matches, but you can tell it's not a sport that I get really into. So it's just kind of like, oh, that's interesting. The ball just got hit over that way. And then the person hit it on the other. Isn't this interesting to stand outside of myself and just as a completely neutral, kind of boring observer of all of this, just watch what's happening and take some of the emotion out of it because you're actually outside of your own body and your imagination and you're just a neutral thing. And again, you could probably do both of these things at the same time as you focus on your breathing. And then you focus on being a totally neutral observer, like you're watching a video of all of this happening, only the color isn't very vibrant. It's, it's almost filmed in black and white. It's just or gray, you know, you can't see very much of what's happening. And I really do think that that would help at least, because again, you can't control her, but just for your own emotional health to be able to do that. If it's super extreme and someone was being extremely hostile to me, I would say something like, it seems like you are going to need a minute. So I'm going to just go get myself a cup of coffee or I'm going to go get myself a cup of water because it seems like you're going to need a few minutes just to kind of regroup so we can have a conversation about moving forward. And I'd keep my voice very monotone, very calm, but I'm leaving that room. I'm going to get that cup of coffee or I'm going to get that cup of water. I'm not going to allow myself or my team members to be treated like that, but I'm not going to verbalize that part of it, but just, it seems like you might need a moment. So I'm going to get some, would you like some water too? And then just slowly starting to teach her how to treat me better. And then I'm not going to tolerate that. I'm not going to sit in a room if there's yelling or you didn't mention any yelling, but if you get that kind of thing happening, I'm certainly not going to sit in a room where that's happening. And something else that's been very helpful to me, and this is my last piece of advice, although I'll tell you this is a really hard situation you're in, but something else that's been helpful is just to use the power of silence. So the more and more someone becomes aggravated and is expressing and, and again, perhaps yelling or raising their voice, then even if they ask a question, just using silence and letting that awkward silence envelop the entire room and people can sometimes almost talk themselves out of what they're doing because no one's giving them any energy back. And it's really hard to explain because if you've never seen anyone do it or never tried it yourself, it takes a little while and you really do have to be willing to sit through some discomfort. But silence is a very powerful thing. 
And then you can wait until maybe they've asked a question or two or whatever, and then they allow some silence on their side. And then you respond to the moving forward part, not to the emotion. But that's another thing that I've tried. Boy, you've asked a really hard question, though. This is really difficult. And I feel grateful that I'm really not in a position where I can't for clients, I can't say no. You know, if somebody was hostile, I just wouldn't work with them. Although I suppose sometimes in classes, I might have students who are difficult. Although I'll tell you really, and maybe this can perhaps take us full circle on all of this. I no longer have students really ever come into my classes that I just perceive as difficult people because 100% of the time I've actually realized, I'll, I'll just tell you a quick story. I'm sorry I said I was done after that, but a quick story where I totally thought this student years ago was just a complete jerk. He'd come into class late and he's all cool in his leather jacket, arms crossed, and I, I just didn't care for him at all. Fast forward to find out his dad was slowly dying of cancer throughout the semester and ended up did pass away before the semester ended. So I've just discovered People I perceive as hostile, at least I'm thinking in terms of my classroom, people are way more complicated than that. So one other thing I guess that could help that really helps me in the classroom where I don't get to decide who comes and takes my classes and who doesn't is just to realize people live really hard lives. 99.9% of the time, that hostility is coming from somewhere. And if we actually knew what it was, we might show them a little bit more grace. But trust me, I know it can be incredibly hard to do. I was thinking about what you just said, Bonnie, in a conversation we had in one of our academy sessions this week. One of our academy members has a stakeholder inside the organization who's a very important person for them to have a good relationship with. And they're very polar opposites on personality. One person, the stakeholder, is very direct, very strong personality, kind of difficult to work with. And our academy member is very opposite that, very much more laid back, much quieter, much more thoughtful and listener. And one of the things that he's discovered in recent months and trying out some new things and has worked really well is actually standing up to that person a lot more in meetings and challenging them more. And one of the interesting things that happened in this last few weeks is that stakeholder came back and said, hey, I'm so glad you're challenging more me now on handling stuff and speaking up and bringing issues to my attention and challenging me in front of others. And it's just, it was a really interesting reminder for, for both of us that we all handle the world in a different way, right? Some people really want you to challenge them and to kind of go at it in the meeting, not in the meet, not in a yelling way, of course, like, like Bonnie indicated, but that's just the way they process things. That's just the way they handle having conversations and interacting and doing business. It's not my preferred method at all. I know it's not Bonnie's preferred method either. But for some people, it is. And in their minds, they're being perfectly rational. And we're the odd, the odd folks out. And so I think it's also helpful, too, if you're looking for other ways to go on this, Harrison, of thinking about, you know, how do you change your behavior and show up and even be a little bit more like that in the situation and match a little bit more of that personality interaction? And that might be something to try, too, and just see what happens from that and see if that gets you headed in a different direction. So I hope that's helpful to you. Let's tackle this next question here from Gregory. He wrote in and said, I manage a team of about 30. Most of them are on-site, but we serve teams of two to five off-site for one to three weeks at a time. They have very little supervision since they're often hundreds of miles away and often in rural areas away from airports, cell reception, and Wi-Fi. What can I do to prepare them and to give them feedback? Bonnie? An approach that's worked really well for me lately is to, in my case, I'm doing a big three for the day. 
And that practice has been very helpful to keep me focused because things come flying at me all day. You might consider it, it may be starting with a weekly basis. You mentioned that they're gone for one to three weeks at a time. So maybe you have a big three that they communicate to you at the start of each week. And then at the end of each week, perhaps then going into the following week, here's my big three, but then here's how this past week turned out. I was able to accomplish all three. This might be something that's very measurable. You didn't mention the kind of business that you're in, but if it's something I installed X things or I completed X jobs, what have you, or it may be a little bit more of a holistic look at things. If this is more people that are in leadership roles, it might be hard to check a box for all of these things. Well, actually, in my case, though, I can check a box because it's part of a bigger plan, a bigger thing as a leader I'm trying to accomplish. So I take those things and translate them into things I can actually check a box off on. Even some of the productivity experts that Dave and I read, I really like this idea instead of like do this, sometimes translating that to consider this. Because I learned way back when to always start every task with a verb something that you could really check it off and say whether it was done or not. But sometimes we become too militant about that. And sometimes it's just like, consider taking this class or consider reading this book. Okay, I considered it. Oh, interesting. I'm not going to read it. I'm not going to do it. And then I can check that box off. So that would be something I would consider while they're away. And that could work over email. And it could even work where they report back into you when you get back. One to three weeks is not that long of a time. If you've got, you know, you're building up trust over time. A number of the emails, including yours this week, were talking about giving people feedback. If somebody goes for a week in their career without feedback, sadly, that's very normal. And so the fact that you're worried about it is a good sign. But then I would just really try to maximize the time when they're back in town and have that be where we really carve out the time. We schedule it. We have a structure for the feedback so that when they're away, they're kind of more just following up on the kinds of conversations that they had when they were in town. So again, The big three is an approach that's working well for me, both on a daily and also on a weekly basis. And then having them send you in reports of how that's going for them. Here's what my plans are for the coming week. And here's how things looked for the past week. I think will help you more feel more comfortable as a leader that you know what's going on. Yeah, I'm in a similar place on this, Gregory. I guess the question that's coming up for me is what's the problem you're trying to solve here? So to Bonnie's point, people not getting feedback for a week isn't in and of itself a problem. Unless there's something happening on these offsite jobs that is not going well from a performance results, whatever the measurement is the organization's doing. So if that's going well, then yeah, in a perfect world, you'd have regular interactions daily, weekly, every other day with people and regular coaching interactions. But if that's not possible, quality over quantity, right? You know, I take it your word that people are unreachable, but I'm guessing there's some sort of connectivity. So part of this is an expectation thing. Like, okay, you know, the last 20 minutes of the day when you get back to the hotel room or whatever, like, do you send a 10-minute quick update of what happened today if that if that level of detail is necessary? I don't know if it always is. But, you know, th- I think there's ways around this from an expectation standpoint that you could address some of this. And then also, what are the overall operating principles? So someone's going into a situation with a client where they're not going to have a lot of opportunity to interact with you for whatever reason over a period of a week or two. What are the overall principles that they can articulate to you that's really important for this engagement? I think back to the operating instructions. It's famously attributed to Nordstrom. I'm not sure if this is actually a Nordstrom thing or not, but it's always it's always been attributed to them of, you know, they the two operating instructions or the two rules for the business. Rule number one, take good care of the customer. And rule number two, when in doubt, see rule number one, right? 
So that's very much, even if that's not literally what's from Nordstrom, it's very much part of their culture. It's how they want to treat customers well. And you may have the same thing for these teams. You know, Here are the two or three guiding principles for this engagement for this client. As long as those things are going well, you're hitting the metrics, don't worry about checking in for two or three days. If something happens that's outside of that, there's a problem, then that's when let's do a check-in and let's do a quick call. So it's not that the feedback itself isn't necessarily the problem. It's what is it that's not working? So whatever's not working, then that's the thing to address and figure out what's the system for that to help get that working again. So hope that uh, helps you out a bit, Gregory. Let's tackle the next question here from Chris. Chris writes, I was wondering if you have had any thoughts or resources that you could share on self-development for autonomous slash remote teams where direct day-to-day feedback is not available. I work at a startup company with a really great culture. However, as a startup, everyone is strapped for time and those of us at the mid-level do not get enough feedback that can help direct training, education, and growth efforts. We're effective at hitting some larger KPIs and on paper, we're killing it but finding it hard to identify areas in which we could grow. Hey, Chris, thanks so much for this question. And good for you for having a great culture within the organization and working at a startup that's hitting your your goals and your metrics. That's awesome. So to the recent episode we aired with Mark Allen, the training, ideally training development activities, leadership development, whatever the activity is, is tied to metrics. So you have metrics already because you mentioned KPIs. So what are those metrics that now you want to not only meet, but exceed? What's next for the organization? What's on the one to two year plan of that? You know, Yeah, maybe you've got it figured out today, but what's the next thing? Ideally, the development opportunities are tuned around that. So the training program that you start is to develop the skills that then go into those KPIs over the next six months to a year to a year and a half of whatever your runway looks like for your startup of what's going to be next. So if you're at or ahead that, great. Jump ahead, go to the next one and begin developing the skills and the talent that will help you to be able to tackle that. Now, the other place to go here, and this is going to vary quite a bit by organization and depending on where you are with your startup is, KPIs are only one piece of the puzzle. The other part is what creates more meaning, not only for you and for others in the organization. So you may be hitting all the metrics, but is there an opportunity to do more from a quality standpoint of just interactions? What creates meaning for your customers and your clients? What can you do now that you've figured out the metrics piece that just provides a better experience for the people working there, for the customers where they're not just happy with your work? but that they really see you and your organization as indispensable. And uh, in just about every organization, there's three or four things that everyone has that feeling of, gosh, I, if only we had the time, here would be the thing we do that would really help serve people better. That's one of them to tackle if you've got the bandwidth and the budget and the time and attention to be able to do a little bit of that. And then finally, I think I'd be remiss here as we record this near the end of 2019, of also not thinking about the inevitable economic downturn that we're all going to face in the coming you know, months and years. You know, we have been in this upswing uh, economically for a long time now. We're overdue for the next recession. It's coming at some point. Who knows when? Are you as an organization also prepared for that? Because part of when I think about leadership development and training 
and how do you really invest in people? That's not just for today. It's also for six months from now, a year from now, a year and a half from now. And I'm starting to see the word headwinds more and more when I look at company reports and news stories of things going on now. I'm starting to see more and more preparing for the economic downturns in strategic plans of organizations. And if your organization as a startup hasn't yet started to think about that, that's certainly a place to consider because we are all going to tackle that here at some point anyway. If you as an organization start to tackle that now and think about how can we assume a very different environment in whatever time frame you think it's going to be, what would we do today from a learning development, skill development, cultural standpoint that will prepare us for that so when the headwinds hit, we're ready to be successful and ready to weather the storm. And in every economic downturn, there are many organizations that struggle, and there are always a handful of organizations that do as well or better because they prepared for the future. Several related conversations from past episodes that'll be helpful if these questions and our uh, dialogue was useful to you today. One of them's episode 91, How to Listen When Someone is Venting with Mark Golston. We talked in the detail about Harrison's question, how to handle a hostile or difficult client. And Mark and I talked on that episode on when someone's coming at you with a lot of emotion, how can you ask some key questions, three specifically, that will help to diffuse that situation a bit so that emotions die down a bit and you can really process the issue and respond to it effectively. If you or the people you influence find yourself in a situation, at least occasionally, where someone is coming at you with a lot of emotion or venting at you, episode 91 is a very helpful framework for how to handle that and have something to do in a situation like that. Also recommended episode 419, performance measurement that gets results. You heard the term KPI in Chris's question, key performance indicator. And on that episode, Stacy Barr taught us about how to really establish key performance measurement indicators for your organization and how to begin thinking about that. And most organizations have done some version of this, or at least a bit of it. But in that conversation, Stacy and I talked about what's the next step to take. Also, if you haven't done much of this, either for the organization or for your team, where can you begin? We had such a great response to that episode. And I'm hoping uh, we'll have Stacy back on the show not too long from now to be able to handle the step two on that. But a good starting point if you or your organization haven't done much on performance measurement, episode 419 is the place to start. And then also would recommend episode 435, tie leadership development to business results with Mark Allen. That was my suggestion for Chris and his question of where do we start? What's the next topic or the next leadership development activity? And ideally, it is tying in with the goals of the organization, performance measurement, as I mentioned a moment ago, but also really does map back to something that's going to not only help people individually, not only going to drive people's careers and help their skill development, not only something they like and enjoy, and in addition to that, that really maps to helping the organization succeed and do the things that are helping the organization be successful. Episode 435, more on that, and we'll have more on that coming in the next few weeks as well. And then finally, I'd recommend Keep Your Ideas From Being Stolen. That is an episode I did on the Dave's Journal podcast. It is a separate podcast from this show. About once a week, I hop on there and do about four to five minutes of a particular thought, idea, skill, 
reflection that I've had from something in the past, either from uh, something we've discussed in our academy sessions or something from one of the conversations here on the show. And so if you're looking for a bit more, and specifically, if you're looking for some ideas on how to keep your ideas from being stolen in the organization, which is a complaint I've heard many times over the years from folks uh, on that episode, some key ways to be proactive around that. All of those episodes you can find on the coachingforleaders.com website. That is also the place to go to get access to my weekly leadership guide that comes every Wednesday. It is one of the many benefits of free membership on the website. You can set up your free membership by going over to coachingforleaders.com. Setting it up will just take you about a minute or so. Once you do that, it'll give you access to the weekly leadership guide, my book notes from all the experts that have been on the show and what I've highlighted from their work that I think will be most useful to you, any of the things you've heard in conversations. Also, my own personal library is in there, the entire podcast library, searchable by topic since 2011. So if you're looking for more on talent development like we talked about today, lots more in there. Just go to coachingforleaders.com. Next week, Lisa Cummings is back on the show. She's our resident expert on StrengthsFinder. We're going to be talking about how to have great learning meetings. Join us for that and have a fabulous week. Take care.